Pastor Glenn is uh, actually preaching this weekend in Peru, where his son John uh, and his family are missionaries. And so, uh, but we are kicking off our series uh, called The Seven Churches, and we're looking at this amazing book, this incredible book, the book of Revelation. And I can't wait to dive into that. But first, um, I just wanted to share with you, I actually just got back from speaking at Hume all last week. Uh, I was speaking up at Hume to a group of students, and it was so incredible. It was so fun. In fact, the theme was literally the entire Bible. I mean, that's literally what they covered is the whole Bible. And it was so cool to see those students engage the way our students engage here with just this passion and with really big questions. Uh, In fact, one of them, uh, there's a a giant pool that they have at Hume Lake. And my family and I were swimming in the pool. And uh, one of Brinley's favorite things in the world is to go to the deep end and, uh, you know, ask me to be in the deep end with her and then to just jump and hope I catch her, to which I always sink down, try to keep her afloat while not dying. You know what I mean? Like just doing that the whole time. And it's her favorite game, especially to jump when I'm not looking. That's one of her favorite things. And so I'm sitting there and she's doing that and I'm trying to catch her. And then all of a sudden this junior high, like this sixth grader puts his face up against the chain link fence that was surrounding the pool and his face is up against it. He goes, Eric, Eric, I have a question. I have a question. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And I'm like, bro, I'm just trying not to drown right now. Like, I can't think theologically. I'm just like trying to survive this. And it was just so cool to see the questions that they asked. And then um, on, a, on a decision night, we got to see so many students respond to the gospel and, and surrender their lives to Jesus for the first time and to take a stand. And, and it was amazing. And, and the next morning, the youth pastors were kind of sharing about this and some of the stories from their cabins. And one of the youth pastors started sharing and he said, hey, Eric, I hope this doesn't offend you, but, um, you know, for the first like four sermons you gave, uh, one of my boys in my group, like he just slept through every single sermon. And I was like, they would fit in great at HSM. That's amazing. They should come and participate with us. And, and he's like, and then during the decision chapel, he started to fall asleep for the first five minutes. And then all of a sudden he woke up and, and he was kind of leaning in and paying attention. And then he started shaking. Like, like he started shaking. The youth pastor was noticing it. And he said, the youth pastor went over to him and said, are you cold? Is, is everything okay with you? And, and the, the boy said, I, I don't know. I'm not cold. I don't know why I'm shaking right now, but I'm just shaking. And at the end of our time, he made a commitment and decided to stand up for the very first time and surrender his life to Jesus, which was just awesome. I mean, it's so incredible to see that. And so if you get the shakes this morning, I don't know, like just, just stand at the end, I guess, is what you should do is the best advice I can give you. But it was just so cool to see God move in such a powerful, life-changing way. But I am so excited for our time together. As we unpack this book, I'm going to spend a little bit of our time just looking at the book as a whole and talking about it because I think we need that before we jump into our passage. But as we jump into our passage, we're going to see that Jesus is writing to a specific group of people who were consumed by defending their faith. That there were false teachers rising up all over the place. And they made a decision. They made a commitment. We are going to defend our faith at all costs, which is good. But then they were being persecuted. And they were growing tired. And life was getting hard for them. And Jesus noticed it. And he appreciated that. But something happened in the process. The exact same thing that can happen to you and I. They began to lose something. 
They began to lose something so critical to them that Jesus was bothered by it so much so that after he compliments and encourages them, he does what he'll do throughout the whole letter. He challenges them. And he says, something is missing from your life, something so critical. The thing that was missing from their life was that their heart was disconnected from Jesus. Their heart was disconnected from God's love for them and God's calling on them to go and love others. In fact, the thing that they learned more than anything was that Jesus wants your heart before he wants your works. He wants your heart before he wants your works. Another way of putting it is this. If your heart's not in it, then we've got a problem. And maybe some of you, maybe some of you have fallen out of love with God or another. Maybe you've fallen out of love with the commandment and the calling that God, the vision he's put on your life. And maybe you are just in the dangerous path of going through the motions. And maybe, just maybe, the way forward, the way out of that, is to actually look back. But before we jump into our story, let's look at the book of Revelation as a whole. What's so interesting about this book is everybody has an opinion about it. And a lot of people don't like it. A lot of people are confused by it. A lot of people have no idea what is going on in this book. And different people, very important historical people, people we know have, have, have written and, and described it in really interesting ways. The, the playwright, George Bernard Shaw, he had a really interesting description. Listen to his description. This is how he describes the book of Revelation that we're about to read, which is the 66th book in the entire Bible. It's the last book, and this is how he described it. He said it this way. He said, it is a curious record of a drug addict's vision. Whoa! Those are bold words for the word of God, right? But it doesn't get better. Luther, you know Luther, the the reformer, the religious leader, Martin Luther, you know what he said about this book? He said that the book of Revelation is absolutely unedifying to believers. In fact, it was a book he didn't even consider was important to keep in. I don't know what movies you've seen or how much you've read of it or what your thoughts are going into it, but I want to give us a clean slate and look at this book from what is revealed through history and through the text to actually begin to understand what this book is about. Find me in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first few verses, we get all that we need to know about this book. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servants, John, who testifies to everything that he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. What is this book about? What's going on in this book? It first and foremost is it falls in the genre, which genres are really important to understand, right? Nobody goes to, uh, you know, nobody, nobody gives a loved one a science book and says, this is going to express my love to you. No, 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 that's scientific writing. That's not poetry. And so it's important to understand the genre so that we'll understand the meaning. The book of Revelation is first and foremost what's called apocalyptic. It's in the first few words, the revelation. That word revelation in the, in the New Testament written in the original language of Koine Greek literally is apocalypse. 
And what it means, apocalyptic literature is this incredible group of writing that has at its core a message of the mysteries of God's truth, specifically to certain people who are suffering and who have some kinds of hardships. Apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation, are meant to remind those who are going through it right now that God is in it and that at the end, Jesus wins. And that there is hope and there is purpose and there is meaning and that God can be trusted. So it's apocalyptic. The second thing it is, is it's evangelistic, meaning it's meant to actually reach people. Look at the last words in that intro. It says, because the time is near. As John's writing this, he recognizes that one day Jesus will return and all those who have surrendered their lives to him will spend all of eternity seeing him face to face and living with each other in perfect relationship. And John wants everyone to be a part of that. And so core to the book of Revelation is this evangelistic heartbeat to bring people into the family of God. So it's apocalyptic, it's evangelistic, and then number three, it's prophetic. Remember he said, blessed is the one who reads a the words of this prophecy. What are prophecies? They're messages, direct messages from God to his people that he wants to work in you, that he wants to transform you into his image, that he wants to challenge you, that he wants to upset the status quo, that he wants to work in your life, and this is how he is going to work in your life. There's this theologian, her name is Elizabeth Fiorenza, and listen to how she describes the book of Revelation. She says this, John's concern, John is the author of Revelation, John's concern is with the issue of power. Who really has control over history's destiny? What a great question. I wonder if you've asked that. I mean, what's going on? You look around, you go, is anyone in control of this? Well, she continues, believers who might otherwise believe in the sovereignty of God over human affairs, they experience oppression and powerlessness that seem to contradict their belief in an all-powerful and caring God. Thus, they conclude, God must be either loving but weak or powerful yet uncaring. But apocalyptic theology The book of Revelation argues for the sovereign rule of God, that God is creator and has absolute control from the beginning of all things. It follows that God also has the absolute control over the conclusion of all things. The gospel teaches, get this one of my favorite sentences I've ever read. Listen to this. The gospel teaches that God's promised salvation has been fulfilled not through a mighty Caesar, but through a slain lamb. Come on, that's revelation. That's what it means to follow God. In fact, the book of Revelation, I believe right now, wants to call into question how you see the world. I believe the book of Revelation has at its core what I want to call divine optimism. This belief that no matter what you're currently going through, struggling with, the oppression you're feeling, the way you may perceive your faith being attacked or challenged, That God has not checked out of the scene. He's not in the lounge waiting for you to figure it out, but God is intricately at work in your life and he knows the ending. Spoiler alert, he wins in the end. In fact, I think it calls into question maybe how you perceive the world where maybe you look at it and you go, 
I'm just full of fear. This whole thing is spiraling out of control. There's no hope. I wish we could just get away from here. To which I think the book of Revelation says, God is taking us somewhere. God is doing something in the world. And the book of Revelation provides us the ability to open our eyes and not see the world and life through our own lens, but to actually see what is going on through the perspective and from the perspective of God. And you see, this is available to each one of us. We, Sarah and I have some dear friends who, in the middle of their pregnancy, found out that there was a chance that their child might be born with a significant health issue. And this couple wrestled with this through tears and struggling and asking big questions. And some of you have been there before where you don't know what the results are going to be and you're just kind of stuck in it. And you wish you could get to that place of knowing and yet you just can't speed up time and so you are stuck where you're stuck. Well, the book of Revelation reminds us that since Jesus wins, we can experience God's peace right now. And this couple, I remember uh, Sarah and I were talking with the mom and, and she shared with us, she said, God has just changed my heart in such a way where if this is what is gonna happen, if this is what he has for us, then okay, we'll step into it. We're honored. In fact, she described to us that she began to feel this sense of peace from God, not because the thing worked out the way she wanted it to, but because as she was right in the middle of it, God interjected his presence, which always brings peace. I remember when Sarah and I found out that our daughter, Brinley, who's now four, she was a few days old, that she was going to need open heart surgery. I remember us in the Pomona Valley waiting room crying, saying, God, what is going on? This is absolutely terrifying. We don't even know what this means. And we prayed and we held on to the scripture that God promises to give us peace beyond our understanding that will guard and build a fortress around your heart and your mind. And we got to experience this peace from God in the middle of the storm. And guess what? Brinley had to still have heart surgery. And guess what? They came back to us and said she would need a second heart surgery and she went through that. And guess what? We have no idea what the future holds for Brinley. But God knows what he's doing and God has given us peace in the middle of the storm. And you see, I wonder if some of us are missing that because we've forgotten who is really in charge, who is leading this whole thing. Well, what about the book of Revelation in terms of who, who wrote it and, and where did they write it from and who was it written to? Check out verse nine. We get the answers to those questions. Verse nine says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and, of, and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, and this is Jesus speaking, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. You see, this, this, this ancient letter was written during the reign of the emperor Domitian in, in the late 90s A.D., 
And it was written by John who knew Jesus and who wrote other letters in the New Testament. But it wasn't written from Ephesus, which is one of the seven churches in Asia Minor. But it was written from an island that John had been banished to. And the reason he had been banished to this island was because he was proclaiming and teaching that Jesus was the risen king. He was sent there because one of the things Domitian required of people when he would pass by is they had to bow down before him and call him my Lord and my God. But John said, oh, Domitian, you got it all wrong. Jesus Christ is my Lord and my God. And so Domitian wanted him dead. In fact, history, the second century historian Tertullian, he actually says that that, uh, that John was actually thrown into a pot of boiling oil. And from within that pot, he actually preached the gospel. He said, I don't care where I am, I'm preaching. And he began to tell people about Jesus. And so Domitian realized the only way to get rid of this guy is to literally banish him onto this Roman penal colony, this place where they would send prisoners that they had punished. And so from this island in a foreign place where he didn't know what was gonna happen next, possibly experiencing fear, struggling for survival, it is in that place that Jesus speaks to him. The historian, the third century historian, Eusebius, he tells us that Domitian, once he died, John was allowed to go back to the church of Ephesus. And so he was probably on this island for less than two years. But while he was on this island, while he was in a place of suffering and struggling and asking big questions, while he was in a place that maybe he wished he wasn't, Jesus had a message for him and for these seven churches. And church, as we begin to read these seven messages together, Jesus is about to really encourage you, but he's also going to challenge you. And for the next seven weeks, get ready, because his message for that church, I believe, applies to us today. In fact, I believe throughout this whole series, we need to be asking the question, Jesus, what message do you have for us? Let's dive in. Find me in Revelation chapter two, Revelation chapter two, beginning in verse one. It says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So the seven stars here is imagery for the angels of these churches, for the messengers of these churches. And the lampstands that Jesus walks among are those seven churches. And so Jesus says, I've got a message with authority for the people that I am invested in their lives, that I know what's going on. I can see all of what's going on. And he begins with this encouragement. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I want to pause here for a second because Jesus is about to challenge us, but I want to pause here for a second. I think Jesus actually does mean these to be encouraging. Some of you are going through things right now where you're loving your spouse and it doesn't feel like there's any reciprocation. You're pouring into your kids or you're trying to be kind to your parents 
or your roommates are just really bothering you, but you are doing all of their dishes. And sometimes it feels like, has anybody noticed this? And you don't want to draw the attention to yourself. Can I remind you that Jesus sees all of it? That everything you do in secret, everything you put hard work into, the ways in which you persevere, even not growing weary, that Jesus sees all of it. And he's proud of it. And he appreciates it. And it's worshipful to him. But as Jesus sees these things that are going on, I wonder if he's worried for you. Because maybe you're about to get to a place that the church in Ephesus was at. Maybe you're about to get to a place where you fall out of love with God. You fall out of love with the people around you. And so you are merely in the dangerous path of going through the motions. And the scary thing about just going through the motions is that you are on a direct path to burnout. That if you are merely just doing things to do things, if you are disconnected from the heart of God and the calling of God on your life, the primary calling on your life, if you're disconnected from that, even though you're doing these good things, you are on the road to burnout. And so this bothers Jesus because Jesus actually cares about your heart. Which is why he says this, verse 4. Yet, in light of all that, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do these things. Do the things that you did at first. He says, I hold this against you that you have forsaken the love that you had at first. This word right here, love, is a really special word in the New Testament. It's agape. And agape is a beautiful kind of way of saying love because what agape means is agape has at its core this self-giving understanding of love. That when it came to loving you, Jesus didn't send a substitute. He sent himself. That God has given of himself for you. It's self-giving love. It's also sacrificial love. Meaning Jesus gave up his life, literally died the death that you and I were supposed to die because of the sin in our lives, but instead he took that on himself and he sacrificed himself. It has self-giving in it. It has sacrificial in it. It has unconditional as a part of it. It means that when you and I were enemies against God because of our own sin, God looked out at his enemies and said, I hate their sin, but I can't stop loving them. And so he unconditionally, constantly says, I will love you no matter how long it takes. No matter how much you stretch out my love, it will in fact be limitless. See, God's love for you is limitless. It's why every time you and I continue to sin and struggle and we confess that and go, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross and rising from the dead for that sin. He goes, I'm so glad you're back. I've been waiting for you. And we live in a world where a lot of people hold grudges against us. And God is not that kind of God. He's not holding any grudges. I love what Pastor Jarrett was saying up here. That God is for you. 
He can't stop thinking about you. You're always on his mind. He is so passionately pursuing you because that is in his nature. From the book of generation, okay, from the book of Genesis all the way to Revelation. You know what God's desire is from page to page to page? Is to dwell with his people. In the garden, God dwells with his people. Sin enters the story of the world. And so God establishes the sacrificial system with the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. The purpose is that God would dwell with his people. Jesus in John 1.14, when he comes down to planet earth, it literally says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word in the original language is literally Jesus tabernacled with us, that he dwelt with us. And then at the very end, on the last pages of the story of the world, when Jesus wins, heaven and earth become one again and God dwells with his people. You see, that's the result of agape love. But you see, these people, this church, this great, influential, important church, I mean, Ephesus was a city of over 250,000 people. This church was thriving and growing, and yet they had lost their first love. And this is a big deal to Jesus. He actually talks about it in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 9. As the Father has agape. As the Father has agaped me, so have I agaped you. Now remain in my agape. Jesus says, look, this is how this whole thing is going to work. You need to understand that just as the Father has loved me and called me to give up my life for you, so I have agape loved you. And now your job is to remain, to spend all of your waking moments and energy remaining in that love. Well, verse 10, Jesus says this, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my agape just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his agape. So, so, so if, if the, the remedy to falling out of love, to going through the motions is remaining in God's agape love through obedience, through trusting in his commands, which one is he talking about? Because at the time that this letter was written, there were 613 Jewish commands. So which one is Jesus talking about? Well, this is the one he's talking about. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus replied, agape. Agape the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Verse 39. And the second is like it. Agape your neighbor as your Self. You see, the people in Ephesus, this church, they were doing really good things, but they had forgotten about the best thing. And because they had forgotten about the best thing, their hearts were becoming hard, and this deeply bothered Jesus. So, what I want to spend the rest of our remaining time talking about is how do we be people? who constantly experience and embody God's agape love. If Jesus is taking so seriously the connection that our heart has with him, then we better spend some time talking about, well, how do we make sure? I mean, what does it look like to truly experience on the regular God's agape love for us and to also embody it in every relationship and situation and circumstance that we find ourselves in? How do we go about doing that? And I think there might not be any better teacher for this than the Apostle Paul. 
Because you see, the apostle Paul, he was very religious. He was a Pharisee. He was a legalist. In fact, he made his living trying to squash out the church. That was his whole purpose. And his heart had become hard to God. He thought he was doing a lot of good things, but his heart was disconnected from the God of the universe. And then he met Jesus. Then he came face to face with Jesus and he experienced what we experience. Every time you and I come face to face with Jesus, something in us changes. Because you can't help but see Jesus, to truly see him, to not become more like him in the process. And so Paul sees Jesus face to face. And then he spends the rest of his life telling everyone he can find about this love, this agape love of God and the way it has challenged him and changed him forever. In fact, in the book of Romans, he's writing a letter to this church in Rome and he spends a good chunk of the letter talking a lot about theology a lot about justification and sanctification and purification and salvation and all the Asians that you can come up with. He used them, every one of them. But then he gets to this point where it's almost as if he says, we need to pause. Because you can have really, really great theology and still be a jerk. You can have really, really good definitions of who God is and be absolutely clueless about how to actually experience his love and to love other people. So I think at this point in his letter to Rome, he actually pauses and he says, guys, we're going to have a chat. We're going to have a conversation about what it looks like to experience God's agape love and to embody God's agape love. And he's going to kind of intertwine them for us. And I want to look at those together. So find me in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Romans 12, beginning in verse 9. He says this, love must be sincere. Guess what? No surprise. The word there is agape. Agape, true love that is connected to God and connected to others. It must be sincere. It's not something you can manufacture. It's not something you can fake it till you make it. It's gotta be in you and it's gotta be instilled in you by God. It's gotta be something that you are engaging at a deep level. What he's saying is if you wanna truly follow Jesus, you can't just go and do without being connected to the source, without being connected to your agape loving creator God. And so he says, agape must be sincere. Then he says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And then the first thing he teaches us about what it looks like to embody God's love is this. Be devoted to one another in love. But a great definition of agape love is devotion. See, some of you are going through really challenging times right now in relationships in your life. And it might be easier to just kind of cut the cord and say, I'm, I'm out of here. I can't endure this anymore. This just isn't for me. Jesus says, if you want to return to that first love and to truly know God's love, you've got to have a devotion and a commitment. Behind this word is a, is a picture of how a parent feels towards a kid. I mean, there are a lot of days, there are a lot of days where I'm going, I don't really know how to parent. I, I don't know if I'm good at this. I don't know if I'm up for this. Man, this is hard work and it's challenging. But every good parent stays engaged. Every good parent stays connected because they've made a commitment to be devoted. See, some of you are just looking for a reason to get out of your marriage. 
Some of you are just looking for a reason to kick that roommate out. What if God's calling you to return to your first love, to return to him and be fueled by him in such a way where you are willing to be devoted to people that might even offend you or challenge you? Maybe you're in a life group right now, and there's some things being said in that life group or a Sunday school class that that are kind of offensive and challenging to you. I want to invite you to not just kind of ditch it and leave it, but to say, you know what, I'm going to be devoted to this because I think God's called me to community. And as you're reading the scriptures, you may come across something that you go, oh, it just doesn't sit well with me. That's okay. It's, a, it's an infinite God speaking to finite people. It's not always going to sit well with us. But if we want to experience and embody God's love, we've got to be devoted. Number two, honor one another above yourselves. This word honor, I think, has at its core for us a recognition and a remembering that the people we interact with every single day are image bearers of God. Do you know that every single person in your life that's really challenging, that bothers you, that may ask you for money, that may make life challenging, a a friend at work, a boss, you know that they're made in the image of God? If somebody's made in the image of God, shouldn't that affect and change the way that we talk to people? I was actually feeling personally convicted about this, even in tone. Like I was thinking, I'll be honest with you guys, I was thinking about if all of you, like if this room was just open to Sarah and I having kind of an argument or working through something, that's my wife Sarah, would the tone with which I talk to Sarah reflect that I believe she's an image bearer? Husbands, I want to challenge you. The ways that you talk to your wives, does it communicate that they have inherent value and worth because God made them in his image? This is going to sound weird. These are the things I think about. I remember thinking like, if Sarah and I were arguing about something and I was talking to her and sharing and all of a sudden like, poof, like Pastor Glenn shows up, right? And I know I should picture Jesus, but I just picture Glenn. So Pastor Glenn... Just shows up, right? Would my tone immediately change towards Sarah in the presence of Pastor Glenn? Or would I speak to Pastor Glenn with the same tone that sometimes I speak to my wife with? Absolutely not. Wives, are you quick to dismiss your husbands? Roommates, are you quick to neglect And be careless about the ways in which you treat your roommates. I mean, I understand those dishes may be stacking up and you're like, look, we got to get this person out of the house. I get that. But what does it look like to truly embody God's love, to honor them as image bearers? It's only possible. It's only possible if you are connected to your first love. In fact, that's where Paul goes next. He takes a turn from embodying God's love and focuses on experiencing God's love. And he says this, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never be lacking in zeal. This word zeal means passion. He's talking about your your spiritual fervor, your relationship with God should never be lacking of passion. And maybe some of you right now, your relationship with God is absolutely boring. If anybody was watching it, they'd turn off after 30 seconds. I mean, it is absolutely boring looking at your relationship with God. And that's not because God is boring. It's because the way you're doing it is boring. God says, if you're going to have a 
if you're going to be aware of my agape love for you, that's going to radically instill passion in you for me. I remember when Sarah and I were uh, first dating. Our, I think our first summer that we were dating, she was filming a movie. And for uh, a, uh, like a few months of that summer when she was filming this movie, she was on set from 6 a.m. until midnight, and we couldn't talk while she was on set at all. And this was back when like we had Nokia phones, and so it was like, do you remember T9 texting that took like six hours to say hi? Like that was it. So we didn't really text. It, would, it wasn't the thing, but we couldn't do any of that. We couldn't talk. And so the only times for Sarah and I to talk every single day was from 5.30 a.m. to 6 a.m., and then from midnight till about 12.30. That's the only time that we had to talk. But this was so early in our relationship that I literally remember she would call me at 5.30. And I was a college student at this time. And so, man, I had like literally probably just gone to bed like a few hours ago. And she calls me at 5.30 in the morning. And I remember answering. I was like, hey, Sarah, how are you? Like so excited, right? And she's like, are you awake? I'm like, yes, I've been awake for hours. I just mowed the lawn. I'm awake. Because I didn't want to miss a conversation with her. And then later that night, I'd be hanging out with my friends and she'd call and I'd remove myself from hanging out and we would talk and connect. And I would experience sleep deprivation, removing myself a little bit from some fun that was going on because I couldn't get enough of connecting with Sarah. I remember when I first became a Christian, I had a a five-disc CD player in my room with some speakers set up. And, and friends gave me five different CDs, worship CDs. And they said, um, and they gave them to me, and I remember I would put them in my five-disc player, and there was a big shuffle button that meant it would play any song randomly. I never knew what was going to come on. And I would sit in my room, I'd click shuffle, and I'd sit in my room, and I would listen to these songs, and I would sing at the top of my lungs. And I felt so connected with God. I would read scripture, and I would talk to people, and I would share with people, and Man, I just had this passion and this excitement. And friends, it is a weekly struggle for me to even get up early enough before the kids. I mean, the kids wake up at an ungodly hour. And it is so... It is so hard for me because I know, man, if I wake up even earlier than them, then I'm going to have less energy than they have. We're going to get to the end of the day, and I'm going to have to overcompensate, and I'm going to be wiped out, and I've got so much going on. And man, I would love just an extra little bit of sleep. And I choose that over and over and over again. And yet, why do I wonder why my heart is becoming hard, why I'm experiencing falling out of love, why I'm merely going through the motions. It's because that same zeal, that same fervor and passion is not there. You guys, I I want what what David had. Now, David was a sinful, broken man, right? I mean, did awful things. And yet his relationship with God was so passion-filled, was so real and authentic that he wrote these words to describe his relationship with God. And can I just ask you the question that I can't get off my mind, and it's this, would these words describe my relationship with God? He says this, he says in Psalm 63, you God are my God, 
earnestly, I mean, listen to the emotion, earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. This means he's literally worshiping God. I mean, even when we're singing here together, do you realize we have like the most incredible worship team on the history of the planet, in the history of the world, leading us in worship? And sometimes we're like, I didn't like that song, right? I mean, can I get an amen? You know what I mean? I mean, we're, we're talking about this. This is real. We have the opportunity on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, to come into the presence of God and to behold his power. And I'm not willing to wake up 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour early for that. Listen to what else he says. Because your love, because your agape is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you on my bed. I mean, listen to the emotion on my bed. I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. You see, David is up all night not because he's binging Netflix. He is up all night because he can't stop thinking about God. I mean, Jesus says, you have forgotten, you have forsaken your first love. Well, then Paul, go back to Romans chapter 12. He says this, be joyful in hope. You want to embody God's agape love? Be joyful in hope. I love that this is a command. It's not, it's not saying either you have joy or you don't have joy. Let's see which one you got. Oh, you don't have joy. Sorry. That's not an excuse you can use anymore. Be joyful is a command. But notice it says be joyful in hope. Here's what every single joy-filled person knows. They have one secret that, is, that we're absolutely clueless to, and it's this. Joyful people have a fixation on hope. Joyful people have a fixation, an unnatural obsession and interest with hope. Joyful people can't stop thinking and believing that God is who he said he is. That God is, as our team reminded us, as our worship team reminded us, that God has told us who we are and we can believe that. That God wins in the end that God will show up in the storm. You see, joyful people, they have a fixation on hope, believing and knowing that God is not done with them yet. Be patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Maybe one of the reasons you don't pray is because you don't have a lot of time. I want to give you permission to pray often and to pray short. To pray often and to pray short. You see, your heavenly father wants to hear from you and he wants to speak to you. And one of the best ways to establish that constant communication with him is to not wait till once a month when you have 15, 20, 30, 45 minutes, but to all day be practicing communicating with your heavenly father. And you'll see as that time begins to expand. Then he says this, verse 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Hospitality is any time we welcome the outsider in. You know, every Sunday we have the opportunity to do this. 
That there's people sitting around you who you don't know who might be here for the first time. And we as people who have not forgotten our first love have the opportunity to welcome those in as as we're interacting with students and kids all around to to make people feel welcome. In fact, study after study after study is showing that people don't flock to churches because they're cool. They flock to churches because they're warm and because they're welcoming. And you see, we, we can do that. I think of a guy um, who's one of my heroes. His name's Peter Hidalgo. Peter Hidalgo is one of our small group leaders. And this guy's busy, got a lot of work, got like four kids. I mean, he's got a lot going on in his life. Very, very busy. Could fill his time doing whatever it is that he wants and just even justify not being able to serve. But he weekly serves and pours into our students. He has a group of senior boys that he is mentoring and discipling and pouring into. And this last weekend, in the middle of all of his busyness, he decided to have a 24-hour video game marathon at his house. Okay? He has these boys over. I mean, just imagine the ungodly smells that were coming from that room. And it'd be easy for Peter to say, you know what? As for me and my house, no high schoolers coming in. You know what I mean? But Peter is hospitable. I think of Courtney, our uh, high school ministry coordinator. She's been so busy along with Laura and Adrian and everyone else and Andrew, our intern, creating this amazing uh, uh, summer camp experience that we're going to have next, next week with our students. And yet in the middle of it, Courtney shared with me that this weekend she decided to invite her small group over to her house to play games, to talk, to connect with each other, to make brownies, to which they gave me none. And, <laughs> and all because God has called us to be hospitable. And, or Micah Bosti is one of our small group leaders. Mike was throwing a 4th of July party for him and his friends. And he had the ridiculous idea to invite students to come over. And so he had his small group over. You see, that's what it means to be hospitable. And when you do that, when you do that, something really incredible happens. I wasn't going to share this, but I will. There's a student in our ministry who I've been personally investing in. And he comes from kind of a hard background. And Sarah and I decided, you know what? We're taking the kids to see Incredibles. We're going to take him along with us. And so I picked him up and got him to our house. And immediately Charlie and Brindley just grab on his hands. And they're hanging out with him. And and I just saw something happen in his life. I saw something happen in his heart. And we got in the car and we were driving just him and I. And this really tough kid, tough kid, starts crying. And I asked him, what's going on, man? And he just said, my life just sucks right now. You see, when we choose to be hospitable, God could do something incredible. In fact, if you're in a roommate situation or you're a family or a couple, I want to I challenge you to two prayers. This month, I want you to pray this. Jesus, who do you want us to invite in? I want as a family for you to pray and say, Jesus, who do you want us to invite in? And then secondly, I want you to pray, Jesus, would you interrupt our lives for your kingdom? Jesus, our life is yours to interrupt in whatever way you want for your kingdom. The last one I want to focus on is this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It's the only time that Paul repeats himself because we're going to really want to move past this one. 
I mean, as soon as you read those words, bless those who persecute you, bless somebody who's mean to you, who seems to want you removed from the situation, from the relationship, from whatever it may be, bless somebody who you're at odds with, bless somebody who's against you, really? And Paul goes, oh, you're, you're gonna lose it, so I need to say it again. Bless and do not curse. And Jesus would say in Matthew chapter five, if you wanna truly experience what it's like to be a child of God, you love your enemies. You don't just love the people that are comfortable. You choose to love your enemies. Well, as the worship team comes back up to lead us in one last song, I wanna remind us that just as Jesus says, as he's closing out this message to this church, he says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Notice he didn't say he hated this group of people. He hated their practices. But whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus says, heaven is coming. And my heart and my desire for you is that your love for me would be first preeminent priority number one. And that your love for others would spill out of that relationship you have with me. And he challenges us because he says, you could be a building, you could be a people gathered, you could even have titles and songs and speakers and all of that. But if you do not have love, if you do not have an agape relationship with God, if you do not have an agape kind of love for others, then you will have missed it. But church, for 2,000 years, we've been called to that. And for 150 years, Purpose Church has existed full of people who love God with everything they can and love others with all that they are. Let's continue in that vein. In fact, I wanna invite you to stand up right now and as we begin to sing these this last song together, I want to invite you to twofold worship the God of agape love who is crazy for you. Worship him with all of that passion and zeal, knowing that he has not forgotten about you, that whatever trials you find yourself in, he is with you. But also allow this worship, allow this connection with God to be the fuel from which you love and serve others. And Jesus said it, if you love others just as I have loved you, then the rest of the world will know that you're my disciples. And so if the rest of the world is going to have any idea that Jesus still lives, that Jesus still reigns, It's only going to come about through us being crazy in love with him and crazy in love with the people around us, including our enemies. And so church, let's experience and embody God's agape love. Heavenly Father, as we jump into this last few moments of singing together, I pray that you would captivate our hearts that we would have a Psalm 63 kind of experience where we just can't get enough of it because Jesus, you are worth it every day, every moment. And then Jesus, as we walk out of these doors, would you fill us with more love than we can handle or know what to do with? And may that spill over into every single interaction we have. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.